This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi there. I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I want to read you a quote. For reasons which can certainly use close psychological inquiry, the West seems to suffer deep anxieties about the precariousness of its civilization and to have a need for constant reassurance by comparison with Africa. Thus Nigerian novelist Chinua Achibi, writing about Joseph Conrad in his famous book, Heart of Darkness. We'll come back to that and what it means. But born in Poland in 1857, Conrad, like us, lived in a time of rapid globalization, of technological disruption, and of all the wonders and horrors that unleashes. My guest today, Harvard historian Maya Jasanoff, has written all about it in her beautifully written, fascinating new book, The Dawn Watch. Welcome to Think Again, Maya. Thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, as I was telling you before we started, I think the last time I read uh, Joseph Conrad, I was like an awkward, maybe 15-year-old on exchange in the south of France, encountering Lord Jim all by myself. And it sort of, it sort of worked well, you know, in that context where of alienation and isolation and sort of metaphysical angst. I think a lot of us bookish teenagers uh, can relate very quickly to that sense of uh, metaphysical <laughs> angst. And certainly I had a similar experience when I first read Lord Jim, which was in my 11th grade English class. Um, and I think that, in fact, that's one of the reasons that Lord Jim works on teenagers is that it's a book about a young man who's dreaming of a certain kind of future for himself, but then discovers that the reality of his life goes in a sharply different direction. And what's in, one of the things that's interesting about Conrad is that, you know, he, and you talk a lot about this in the book, he, his books are set in many different specific locations. We've got Africa, we've got a sort of fictional Latin American country in Nostromo. And then Lord Jim is set... In Southeast Asia, Southeast where a Asia. very uh, large number of Conrad's works were set. And, and he had experience of some of these places, but in some ways that's that is and is not what they're about, right? I mean, about about the specificities of these places. Like, there's another, there's a sort of internal through line going on there. I think a lot of what makes great work great is that it operates on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about Conrad's work is that it operates on a very specific level. That is, he uh, draws on, on his personal experiences in specific locations around the world. He draws on other uh, sources, news items, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, he infuses all of this stuff with a kind of uh, more universal meaning. Let's talk a bit about his experience, right? So he's born, and I won't say his name correctly, maybe you can, but what his birth name was. Yusuf Teodor Konrad Korzeniowski. Right. So he's born in Ukraine, which at that time was within Poland, right? Uh, it was actually within the Russian Empire. Okay. And uh, Poland as a nation state didn't exist at that time. But when we think of him as Polish, that is in what sense? So uh, he's ethnically Polish. Okay. His parents were right, Polish, right, but right. the nation wasn't there. And so his parents were among many Poles who were really, really invested in trying to restore an independent Poland. Got you. And you talk about how his parents, so, you know, the, the, the political fight that his parents were engaged in, his father was named Apollo, I guess, that sort of the intensity of that and to some extent the, the well, definitely the failure of that ultimately colored 
Conrad's life, uh, later life and thinking. Very much so. He was born an ethnic Pole in the Russian Empire. Maybe we could think uh, as an analogy of, say, the Kurds today, right? right. There's, there's ethnic Kurds, but they're living in Syria and Turkey and, and so on. So he's raised as a subject of the Russian Empire and with this very strong sense, at least that his parents have, of you know, being an oppressed minority subject. Now, I should add, he comes from a reasonably well-off and certainly very well-educated background. So, you know, these right. ideas of oppression, we have to sort of think about and, you know, from, from different angles. But his first experience of the world is um, as the child of these Polish nationalists who are actually persecuted or punished for their nationalist activity. And his parents are sent into exile by the czarist authorities uh, to the borders of Siberia, which is actually where Conrad has some of his early childhood years. And so, you know, playing armchair psychologists, I guess, like there is a fatalism and there's a sort of a, a fatalistic pessimism that runs throughout all the books. Yeah, he gets, I think, uh, the pessimism in two ways. One is that his parents are certainly deeply cynical and upset and depressed about the failure of Polish nationalism in their lifetimes. The other thing, though, is that they both get sick, they get tuberculosis, and they both die very young, with right. the result that Conrad is an orphan at the age of 11. So for him, he sees this nationalism that, first of all, doesn't yield an independent Poland, and second of all, is kind of the undoing of his parents. So for him, right, this kind right. of wonderful romantic idealism just yields a childhood of displacement and trauma and even like even putting aside the the political component i mean it's a very it's just a very edward gory kind of child you know grotesque and and morbid situation he grows up in yeah yeah he's an only child he's taken from place to place his parents are sick he himself is sick a lot he's his mother dies his father can't look after him he's shunted to an uncle he's brought back by his father etc there's right, a ton right, of right, dislocation right right, right. And speaking the, of angst-ridden teenagers <laughs> exactly. conrad was such a person yeah and whose uncle uh, who he does keep uh, have a relationship with through the rest of his life um you know for the rest of the uncle's life is in an interesting sort of binary opposition with with his father and 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 to a certain extent a big part of Conrad's self, yeah? Yeah, he tries to counter-program against the father in various ways. So Conrad's father was a committed nationalist. He was also a man of letters. He wrote poetry. He wrote plays. He translated dreamer. from French. He was a dreamer. He was a dreamer. At least that's what Conrad's uncle right, said. Right. Um, and Conrad's uncle, it's on the mother's side, and the family was very reluctant to let him marry their their uh, family member. Um, so after Conrad's father dies, this uncle takes over guardianship, and he is a much more pragmatic person. His attitude about Russian rule over ethnic Poles is that he doesn't like it, but he thinks, look, I mean, this is the way it is, so we ought to try to make the best of it. Right. And uh, one of the details, I think, that, that sort of uh, shows the difference in personality between the father and the uncle is that when Conrad is born, his father writes a poem mm. on the day of his son's christening. Uh, and he uh, says it's in the 85th year of Muscovite oppression, and it's full of all this kind of romantic poetry. But then when Conrad's uncle takes over the guardianship right. of Conrad, he opens an account book, and he starts to note down all of the expenses that he <laughs> pays for Conrad. And then he plans to give it to him when he's a teenager to say, here are all the things that your family did for you now be a kind of responsible grown up man and take right. care of yourself and, and, and responsible in, in, in good ways. Although to be uh, to to temper the you know any any tendency we might have to side with the father here that poem was pretty depressing as well. It was <laughs> basically like a, a, a note of doom for the yeah, future. Yeah, you yeah. will you will have no future <laughs> while Poland your mother is in her grave. Right. Unquote. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting legacy. So. So he goes off into the world and he he's in shipping. There's a very interesting thing that happens here. So, you know, for a while he is a uh, sailor. Yeah. And this is a moment when we're, we're dealing with um, a transition. I want to get to the bigger picture here, but I kind of I don't want to spit it all out at once because it'll get too complicated. But there, there's the, it's a moment when there's a transition from sailing to steam shipping. This resonates for, for, for Conrad at the level of ideas. Like, what does it mean to him? So, first of all, he is a sailor for 20 years. Right. It's a long time. Right. It's a first career. And 20 years is a long time. So he really gets into it well before he becomes a writer. And he's working... 
chiefly on long-haul sailing ships, which are plying between Europe and Southeast Asia and Australia. Mm. Uh, but he's sailing across a period of this displacement where steamships, which have been around for a while, are getting better and better and better and better able to displace sailing ships on these longer transoceanic routes. And what you see going on is a bit like what we've been seeing in the late 20th and 21st centuries with industries like, say, uh, film photography or something like that, right. where a new technology comes in and it has certain benefits. It's often cheaper. It, In the case of the steamships, it was more reliable, et cetera, et cetera. But it also means that there's a whole set of skills that go with the industry or the version of the industry that's being displaced that right. are no longer in as much demand. And that's what's happening in the ships. So if you're on a sailing ship, there are sails that you have to deal with. Right. There's a whole lot of things you have to the, the know how to do. that you have the to be wind. aware of exactly. and in touch with or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and if you're on a steamship, you need engineers because there's a boiler and there's uh, an engine and there are funnels and there's all kinds of right. different things. There's coal. You have to shovel it into the boiler. There's just different kinds of jobs that are needed. And so Conrad witnesses this transition as more than just a transition between one kind of technology and another. He witnesses it as a working person who sees that there's a whole way of work, a whole set of skills, a whole way of being that is being pushed aside in favor of a different one. And he goes on to really infuse that difference with an almost moral gravity. That's right, yeah. And for him, that transition is uh, a difference between not just somebody who knows how to raise a sail or mend a sail and somebody who shovels coal into a boiler, but it becomes a whole question of how a community of working people lives together, what kind of connection they have with nature, uh, what right. kind of sense they have of their own relationship to the work they're doing. You know, he has a feeling of, you know, they're putting skill into it. It's a craft. He uses that word a lot. Mm. Whereas he sees the steamship as being this just sort of mechanistic, mindless thing that's moving along. And he sees people on steamships as being you know, selfish, no longer committed to something bigger than themselves, not invested in a kind of craft, and lacking a sense of kind of honor uh, of a sort that he sees as binding together the crew of a sailing ship. Right. And as someone who gravitates towards the humanities and who started out, maybe one of my first loves would have been William Blake and that kind of romanticist response to the Industrial Revolution. I, I, I very much sympathize with those feelings. But, you know, I encounter people a lot in these conversations. Very recently, I was speaking with uh, David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist and a technologist. And I said, you know, I, I voiced something like this. I said, well, you know, yes, you know, progress is great and everything, but it seems like, you know, we lose a great deal as well. I don't know, in a very vague and general sense. And he says, well, would you have wanted to live in the Middle Ages kind of thing? So I, I wonder sort of, I don't know, I mean, I, let's go, come out of Conrad for a second. I mean, what's your perspective on that? conversation as a historian. So I think the thing is that the word progress is hard <laughs> to fight against, right? It's a word that just sits there and, you know, it's hard to say, oh, well, I don't support progress. So I think we have to step outside that word in order to get at what's really going on here. And what's going on here is that progress is only progress depending on where you sit. And <laughs> what Conrad understood and what I think you're getting at as well is that progress for one person might not be progress for somebody else. So right. it's easy to say, yeah, today, you know, we have antibiotics and we have, at least in the most of the United States, we have electricity and, you know, various things right. like clean drinking water, although, by the way, not everywhere. And then there's uh, um, Pinker. Is he at Harvard as well? There's his yes, sort of that's right. his, you know, yeah. end so, of violence so, thing. As yeah, well, I mean, know, so you can look at these things. I mean, women have the right to vote. You know, I, I, I would I would I would rather live right now than as a woman than at any other time <laughs> in history. Right. But but I can say that because, for example, and I'm, an, I'm an American citizen. I'm an educated person, you know, et cetera. Right. I mean, I've had the benefits of an education. Yeah, I mean, I've been in a position of privilege. And I think what we need to remember when we think about progress is that, again, this is not, it doesn't lift all boats evenly, right? It's right. a tide and, or, or you could even say more like a tidal wave and it can sweep some people up to the high ground, but it can actually leave other people drowned. So, right. you know, one of the things we see now, for example, is massive inequality, right? So if you 
you look at uh, the world of 120 years ago, for example, no one had antibiotics, right? <laughs> no okay. one had the internet, obviously. Right. Today, you have some people who have all of this stuff, but then you also have other people who are lacking it. I mentioned clean drinking water before. You know, look at Flint, Michigan. Look at huge parts of the world today that are lacking clean drinking water. This is one of the things that is supposed to be a form of progress, and it is, but it's absolutely not evenly distributed. And so I think it ends up leaving, it ends up widening the gaps in all kinds of ways that I think we need to be sensitive to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, it's obviously like, I guess the rejoinder to, well, would you have wanted to live in the Middle Ages cannot be, well, if we look at the equation, it balances out evenly that for every every inch of progress, we get an inch of regress. Like that's not necessarily. No, I, I would just say that if either. you were, if you were the king of France in the middle ages, you're, you're in one position. <laughs> right. um, and if you're in a refugee camp right now in the world, you're in another position, right? right? Sure, so, you know, sure. we just have to kind of break this down. But the other thing I think you were getting at is, is what's lost. And right. I think that's an important thing for us to think about, particularly now when we have all kinds of industries that are that are taking off and being transformed. And so one of the things that's lost is simply on a generational level, right? Okay. That there's a generation of people who are working in certain industries and those industries are being transformed and there are not necessarily jobs for them anymore, right? right? So that's, a, I would say... A, a, a problem of the of the here and now, where we need to think about what we're going to do. This is obviously playing itself out with with coal miners, for example. It has played itself out in the past with uh, the automobile industry, right? I mean, there are various right. places where this is happening. Jobs are concretely lost, and exactly. What are those and so, what are the people going to do? Gonna yeah, do? Right. right. So, we have to think about that. Um, but we also need to think about, I think, these other questions about what is lost in terms of values. And right. one thing we could say, for example, about outsourcing is that we have relative increase in the number of jobs in parts of Asia and a relative increase in uh, the incomes in that part of the world. Um, but we also see often a decline in conditions of labor, right? We see fewer workplace protections. We see more dangerous workplaces. We see aggregate lower wages compared to what, let's say, a Western worker would get. Right. Um, and so I think that what Conrad perhaps makes us look at is that, you know, you can have technological change, but it doesn't mean that you have to throw out some of the values that you might have anyway. Like, for example, uh, for people to be invested in their work and get some sort of satisfaction out of their work. Like, for example, right. a sense of solidarity in a workplace or in a community. You know, people talk a lot today about the atomization of communities as it's being accelerated by the digital revolution, right? I think Conrad would point to that and say, right. look, a smartphone is a wonderful thing, but if it prevents you from talking to somebody who's sitting next to you, maybe that's a loss, right? Right. So we can keep some of these values. I was talking earlier about more sort of socioeconomic things or political things, but I think we also need to absolutely, in this present moment, keep our eye on the ball of, of making sure that while we're heralding all of these new things that are out there, we don't lose sight of taking care of people who are losing their jobs and taking care of the conditions of work that, that people are entering into. Right, yeah. I think sometimes it turns into, the, the conversation turns uh, sort of unwittingly into a zero-sum game where it's like either... Either we have progress or we dwell on the past, you know. And, and either you're a Luddite or you're not. Right. I mean, that's I think what I'm that, saying. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and I mean, I, I tend to think as a historian that, I mean, the, the record tends to show that when technologies come in, they find a niche. So, for example, uh, people used to say, well, you know, the radio is going to mean that books are going to go away right. or movies are going to mean the radio is going to go away, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously, the, the market share may shift, but we still have all of these things. And right. my hunch would be that that right now we're right at the beginning of something about the smartphone and having the internet in people's pockets. But then in another 10, 20 years, people are going to be using these technologies very differently. And I don't think it's going to be the death of conversation, for example, or the death of face-to-face right. -face interaction. Yeah, I mean, who would have predicted that all of these years after like the shadow and such radio plays, we would there would be this we would be talking right now on a podcast, you know, that. Exactly. It can actually <laughs> revivify things in, in interesting ways. Right. So I, I think I want to get to, I do want to get to the, the kinds of forces that Conrad is dealing with in Heart of Darkness, um, 
you know, and specifically this this kind of clash between the idea of civilization and its opposite, savagery. I guess it would be they would have he would have called it, you know. And then Achibi's critique of 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 him. Yeah, can we just begin opening that topic somehow? Sure. So <laughs> Achebe calls attention to a couple of things that are absolutely indisputable in Heart of Darkness. One of them is that Africans don't have any kind of voice to speak of in the text. Uh, they are rendered by Conrad in incredibly sort of racial, racist, stereotypical rolling terms, eyes rolling and eyes blah, and blah, blah, yeah, yeah. various kinds of grotesque yeah. imagery. And the other thing that I think is indisputable in, Heart of, in Achebe's reading of Heart of Darkness is that uh, this other region, which, by the way, is not named in the text. We assume it's Africa for a whole bunch of reasons, okay. but it's actually not named, which I think is important. But in any case, this domain is used as a place on which to project a broader discussion about civilization and savagery. So those two things are right. absolutely right. I think Achebe's critique was absolutely uh, vital, necessary, and I, I personally wouldn't dream of teaching Heart of Darkness today without putting Achebe's essay next to it. Right. On the other hand, I think that we also need to uh, look at some of the other features of Heart of Darkness that that make it, as I said earlier, is the case in a lot of Conrad, about a set of specific things and then also about a set of more general things. And so if uh, Achebe is right, as I think he is, that, that Africa or the non-Western world becomes the place against which the West defines itself, right. we also need to take stock of the fact that in Heart of Darkness, it's not a here and there, an us and them. It's that we are related and linked. And I think for me, that's the right. critical point. You know, this is a story that one could say is quote unquote set in Africa, but in fact, in its in its telling, it is set on a boat in the Thames estuary, which is the only location that is actually named in the book. And so the story is being retold on the boat in the Thames estuary, but is about an unnamed. Exactly. Know, exotic and, location. Yeah. And the, I think that what is uh, inescapable in the entire text is a critique of the notion of civilization at all. Uh, it's okay. not saying, you know, here's civilization, there's savagery, we can slip from our position of civilization back into a state of savagery, although there is some discussion of that sort of thing. I think what it's really getting at is saying civil, we are ourselves, as human beings, capable of all kinds of what we might describe as savage actions. It is part of right. human nature. It is part of this society, this Western society, as you know, he, uh, as he portrays it, that right. is going off and claiming to do all of these, you know, high and mighty and noble things, but is in fact giving room to these sort of darker, uh, to use <laughs> to use Conrad's <laughs> word, right. these these darker impulses uh, in human nature. And well, I think another another feature of it that's important is, I mean, I, I think that Conrad is interested in that text and talking about humanity sort of more generally. And and there's a, a passage in Heart of Darkness, which Achebe calls attention to, where Marlowe is looking at some Africans and they are portrayed in this grotesque way with the eyes rolling and so on and so forth. And and Marlowe looks at them and he says, well, what, what thrilled you, he uses that word thrilled, was uh, the sense of a, a connection between right. them. Right. I think that's actually really important. Achebe looks at that and says, well, that's not, you know, what he really means is that these people are sort of bestial and, you know, we can't really take Marlowe seriously. Of becoming them is, exactly. what, is how Achebe reads it. That's know, right. That, you know. But I think that we need to stop on that for a minute because if you look at this for, at the, as a product of the time in which it's written, right. this is a time when huge numbers of people in Europe are incredibly invested in showing that Africans and Asians and people of different skin colors belong to different essentially subspecies, right. right? I mean, this is the high watermark of scientific racism. And what Conrad is doing here is he's being racist in a certain manner of speaking that we would use today. That is, he is using stereotypes about these other peoples. But he is, I think, explicitly moving away from falling into this more kind of scientific racist thing of saying, oh, they are not human. They are subhuman. They are something else. So Achebe, like uh, full disclosure, I read that essay for the first time today. Um, and, you know, Achebe is sort of like Africa as experienced in Heart of Darkness is the, and, and the people of Africa are this thing 
threat to our humanity because they represent some common linkage that we might get kind of sucked back into. And he goes further to say that like the Congo River and the Thames are contrasted similarly so that like the Thames has been has been civilized and the Congo the Congo represents that kind of ancient kind of swampy past that we could get sucked back into and that's what happens to Kurtz and you know that that Captain Kurtz has he sort of dallied too close to that that old inescapable so it's like even though it is familiar even though it is part of our physical history or whatever it's a trap that we should avoid somehow. And that that's why imperialism, that's why the cruelty and the barbarism, you know, happens in the jungle because the, the white man has been sort of compromised by going too close to that thing we should have left behind. Right. I yeah. would say that, I, th I mean, my reading of Conrad would suggest that, um, that he's saying that you don't have to go to the jungle in order to have that happen to right. you. Okay. Um, that the simple fact of, uh, of, of having this kind of faith and this set of civilizing ideals, which are themselves shams, right. is enough to do you in. Um, I do think that, I mean, the, I, th it's clear that the other location is vital here. And, right. and he's certainly saying that uh, by going there, you know, you're, you're potentially bringing this other thing back. But I think, I think the energy of that text is about what is coming from Europe and going out there. And mm -hmm. I think, to me, that's the piece of it that is particularly important for us to think about today. Because, you know, you can look at the world today. You can look at, for example, the discourse of human rights. right? right. And you can see how there are many ways in which we look at things like, the treatment of women across different societies. And we use that as a barometer of social or cultural or political or whatever development, right? And we'll say, oh, sure. well, you know, or, or um, gay rights would be another area where this is very obvious in the world today. Um, and where we look at things like marriage equality or, or women's rights as something that has been achieved I use that word deliberately in certain societies and not in others. And I right. think that and we're comfortable with that kind of notion of progress. We are yeah. very comfortable yeah. with that. And I don't I don't call attention to this to say that I'm uncomfortable <laughs> right, with right, those right, things. Right, right, I'm right, very right. comfortable with them. But right. I think that I mean, again, to me, the salient point to take away from Achebe's discussion for our use today is that there are ways that people in the West pose themselves in counterpoint to people in the non-West in order to make various statements about where we're at. Right. That is clear. And that Africa was such a locus is really important. Now, Conrad, I also want to point out, he wrote a lot about Asia. Hmm. And there are differences in the way he writes about Africa and Asia, which actually, I think, enhance Achebe's point in certain ways. Uh, but at the same time, there's a there's a way that, uh, again, I think this 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 falls into... Um, what I'm stressing as a more, if you will, universalist understanding um, that Conrad is advancing, which is that Conrad recognizes people to be products of specific cultures and places and times, um, but he also recognizes there to be certain sorts of, you know, call them romanticized, whatever you will, uh, moral standards that right. can be attained or betrayed by people of any sort of background or race or whatever. So he actually, and Lord Jim, for mm. example, idealizes this region in Southeast Asia as a place where Jim is maybe going to be able to refine a certain kind of honor that Conrad sees as having been lost in the West. So I, to me, it's that push-pull right. that what happens here is related to what happens there, what happens there is related to what happens here. And it's a push-pull that isn't simply you know, the West goes out and does these things to the non-West. It's a it's a push-pull, or that the West goes out and meets the non-West and is then corrupted. Right. I think it's more <clears throat> that this stuff is sort of latent in humanity, and it can be, I think Conrad's critique is about ideas of sort of progress more generally that he thinks are false, ideas of civilization more generally that he thinks are at best a kind of thin sheet of ice that's over uh, a, a very roiled, uh, churning whirlpool of uh, human nature. Yeah, and, and, and the last thing I thought about this was like, you know, in this critique, which again, like I agreed with uh, Achebe on so many points, but I was thinking about the way that someone like Conrad was, you know, who had traveled the world, was able to write about or try to get at these kind of universal, quote unquote, themes in the context of these specific cultures and how today 
trying to do that is already a very fraught thing. Like the idea of, of writing about a place that you're not from is already in many ways a very fraught thing. It would be a difficult thing to pull off without sort of being attacked on all sides for having misunderstood the, the lo locus, you know, of your, your It's thing. an interesting point because Achebe's critique of Conrad is precisely that he doesn't try to enter into the minds of the African figures that he's writing about, or, or he's not writing about, that, right. he's, that he's putting into the text. But now, of course, the critique, as you say, would be that if he did try to, then I think Who are would you be. to do that? Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, we're in, a, we're in an interesting moment right yeah, now yeah. about who has the right to speak for whom uh, and who has the right to speak at all. And I would distinct, but I would distinguish between those two things. I would say that if we read Conrad as speaking for a middle-class educated uh, European man going around the world, seeing various things, writing about them, et cetera, then I mean, that's the way we should receive Conrad. Um, right. And if we do that, then I see certain analogies, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm a middle-class educated person, but I'm a woman, I'm not European, I'm not even, uh, I'm not even white. And I see analogies, nonetheless, between the kinds of things that Conrad is seeing in the world and the kinds of things that I can see in the world. Um, so right, right. I think that I think that we, I guess what I'm getting at is, is in a way twofold, which is that um, we can read his experiences as the products of a very specific person and thus take them on board with their limits. Right? right, he's not a person from Asia or Africa. He's not a woman. In fact, his female right. characters are extremely underdeveloped. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that we can't find analogies that can be relevant for us today. And I think this is this is my point about you know Conrad becoming a citizen of Great Britain, which at the time was the greatest uh, the greatest world power. Right. Um, uh, those of us today who are middle class educated members of of the United States, you know, are are in a somewhat analogous position, whether we're male or female or white or not white or or whatever our sexuality may be. There are certain there are certain features that right. make us inhabit a place in the globalized landscape that are worth thinking about to do with class, to do right. with what kind of passport we carry, to do with what sort of access to what kinds of professions we may have, to do with the ease with which we can travel around the world, and to do with where we stand in relation to some of these forces of so-called progress mm -hmm. um, that are reshaping the world. And, uh, and so I think that that's, uh, that's the way in which I receive Conrad. I see him as a, a sort of member of a certain kind of globalized middle class whose members today are to be found among readers like me. And I think that's a good place for us to shift to the second half of the show. Um, for the listeners, this is where the video team at Big Think has chosen a few surprise short clips from our archive, interview archives uh, on various subjects. And Maya and I are going to watch them and talk about them. So this first clip is called How Social Media Profits from Our Moral Emotions. And the speaker is Molly Crockett, professor and neuroscientist. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. live in a world now where there is an economic model that strongly incentivizes online platforms like Facebook, Google, Twitter to capture as much of our attention as possible. The way to do that is, is to promote content that is the most engaging. And what is the most engaging? Moral content. There was a recent study uh, that came out of NYU recently that characterized the language in tweets. And this study, which was led by William Brady and J. Ben Babel and colleagues, found that each moral emotional word in a tweet increased the likelihood of a retweet by 20%. And so that means that the algorithms that select for what is shown to all of us in our news feeds are selecting for the content that's going to be the most engaging because that draws the most attention, because that 
creates the most revenue through ad sales for these companies. And so this creates an information ecosystem where there's a kind of natural selection process going on and the most outrageous content is going to rise to the top. So this suggests that the kinds of stories that we read in our news feeds online might be artificially inflated in terms of how much outrage they provoke. So I'll say, first of all, uh, we both of us, while watching that, we were kind of at this, this, this notion of immoral events, like both of us were wondering what the heck that could mean. I think there's a, <laughs> an issue that I see in this, which has to do with the al algorithmification of everything. Um, and it's that I think in studies of this kind, there's a need to classify complicated events into or complicated emotions or whatever it is into one of two categories. So I yeah. don't know on the face of it, what would count as an immoral event, you know, it, and my guess would be that if, as she's saying, people respond more to ones they learn about online than ones they learn about in person, it might be because the ones they learn about online are ones that are classified as immoral by some different logic from the one that they might use in their own lives. Right. So there, there's a lot here that we would sort of need to know to make sense of that part of it. But I, I guess my question, you know, one thing I was thinking since I'm talking to a historian, is whether you think this is actually true that, you know, that somehow our media or the things that attract our attention now are, are more emotionally inflated, more outrageous, whatever, than the things that attracted people's attention in, say, a tabloid in the 1700s. I see no evidence of that. Um, the tabloid press was invented in the late 19th century. And one oh, of the things okay. that got it going, one of the things that got it going was the technology that allowed, of course, for cheap for cheap print, but particularly for the cheap printing of images. And uh, some of the early tabloids have, I mean, in the late 19th century, there was a flowering of these newspapers called things like Police News, and they would have these incredibly gory pictures on the front page and stuff like that. Um, so that certainly attracted a big readership uh, then, right. uh, just as the equivalent do now. I think that the the allure of sensationalism, my guess would be, is pretty transhistorical. The only question is what media exist to circulate it and how wide they go and, and, and how many people they can reach. Right. With, say, Jack the Ripper being the ultimate news story, pretty girls, you know, uh, moral questions uh, and, you know, murder. Precisely. And we know <laughs> historians have shown over the last couple hundred years, for example, that sex scandals and these sorts of things have always been enormously galvanizing of popular attention. Again, right. it's just a question of how they how they're I think what what we should focus on more is on how they get circulated than on whether the essence of it is provocative or not. At one time in human history, and this is a very broad statement, but you could say, you know, people were mostly living in small communities, like pre-global, before there's an idea of globalization, there's people living in sort of smaller clusters without necessarily too much knowledge of what's going on outside of them, right? So the promise of globalization is that we're all kind of one big happy family, as it were, right? Um, not that that ever actually, you know, happened. But but so do you see this bubbling off, the, what we call these sort of like social media bubbles that people are now in and the polarization that might be happening as a result of social media? Like, how do you see that in the context of globalization and in, in the context of this idea of connectedness? So I think that it's pretty clear that in human society, people always have ways of um, dividing themselves up and ways of connecting themselves together. And the modes they have for doing that include things like kinship systems or include things like, um, you know, where you live in a town and, and so on. And so in the same way that I said, we can look at this question of, say, moral outrage as something that's always going to be there. It's just a question of how it's circulated. <laughs> right. um, I think that on this question of how people are going to divide up and how they're going to link together, the thing to look at now is not that it's happening, because of course it's going to be happening. <laughs> right. It's just how is it happening? So clearly you could argue that in the digital world now, the ability of people to be connected to each other is, of course, much greater than ever before. And the bubble that I inhabit, for example, in my Facebook world is international. Um, it ranges across a huge number of occupations. It ranges far more deeply and widely in certain ways than the kind of bubble that I would find in my office building. 
right? Right, right? On the other hand, you could say that it's a bubble that has other kinds of attributes in common. It's English speaking, for example. Um, it's, you know, politically slanted, mostly in a certain direction and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so, you know, I guess what, what would I say about it? I'd say that this is one of these cases where you, you sort of you win some, you lose some. It sort of depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for connections that are reaching beyond uh, political views. For all I know, the the bubble tendencies of the social media world do not invite the cultivation of those sorts of connections. Um, On the other hand, if you're looking for connections that range beyond your city or your country, the social media world absolutely invites that kind of connection. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that the I think that the talk of the echo chamber stuff has been really interesting, and uh, I guess my question about that would just be whether, you know, how much of that was ever different. I mean, you know, when people lived in towns and had town meetings as more of a kind of feature of their lives, or more when a higher percentage of Americans went regularly to a religious center once a week, to what extent would you find? huge diversity of opinions and outlooks and so on, I don't entirely know. Um, (laughs) What I do know, and this is well um, documented, obviously, and and I think we all live this a bit, is that we can see that that neighborhoods are less income diverse. Uh, They're not necessarily very ethnically diverse. The number of people who have contact with close neighbors seems to be lower now than it once was. There's clearly an increase of a certain kind of lateral connection to people who don't live in your same space, as opposed to vertical connections to people who do live in your same space, let's say within a square mile or two. So that's definitely different. But like wrapping one's mind around what that actually means in ter- terms of the sort of m- moral scope of human behavior and the and the arc of history is is kind of ridiculously big in in some ways, you know. Yeah, and I think this is the this is the central point that that I think about is that every one of us has numerous identity positions that we occupy, right? right. And the whole point of intersectionality, in a way, is to is to acknowledge that. At the same time, I think that, you know, this is kind of what I was saying about Joseph Conrad. We can look at Joseph Conrad as a white European man who was involved in imperialism. We can also look at him as an immigrant. We can also look at him as somebody who was a member of a certain kind of working class uh, profession for a long time right. and, and so on. You know, so so we can look at any person in a whole variety of ways. And when we talk about bubbles, I think we need to think about what axis we're thinking about those bubbles on because, you know, the elephant in the room in some discussions is often how um, we put together income diversity in a moment right now when we're talking about inequality a lot in America Mm -hmm. with how we then put together questions about ideological diversity and how we put it then together with questions of ethnic and racial diversity. And again, these things can sometimes track and clump and so on, but these are slightly distinct issues. Right, right. And I th- and I think I mean one thing that to me is refreshing about Conrad and about sort of revisiting Conrad after all this time and that would I would be unfortunate to have lost had Conrad, you know, never written what he did on account of not wanting to speak about something or someone he didn't fully understand is that is that all of us in this world are confronting things and people that we don't fully understand. And to somehow deny that or try to put ourselves in some kind of position of pretending that we understand everything or not talking about anything because we don't want to make a gaffe or something cloaks, I think, from ourselves, like what those intersections are about and how how they change us, you know, those encounters. I don't think that who we are is a seamless proxy for what we have to say. And I don't think that what we have to, that what we're talking about is a proxy for what we think about it. So I think those are things we need to watch out about. I also think that it's, so, so I feel two things. I mean, I guess, first of all, as a citizen, I feel very strongly that everybody ought to think deeply and meaningfully about the experiences of people who are different from them. 
And I teach at Harvard. It's a it's a college that has a huge endowment, which means that it's able to provide financial aid to people of all kinds of backgrounds, which means that it has actually a, a very diverse student body. I think that's fabulous. On the other Me- hand... Meaningfully so, huh? Yeah. Because like, I would think there would be a misperception yes. among a lot of people that very that's much not so. the case. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. On the other hand... Everyone who goes to Harvard then graduates and has gone to Harvard. And our students tend to go into five or six different outcomes when they leave college. Mm -hmm. About 30% of them, as far as I know, go into management consulting or banking uh, right out of college. Um, So there's an incredible homogenizing process that happens here, right? So So in that sense, they're they're sort of the beneficiaries of what you might call whatever white privilege or class privilege or whatever. Well, this is elite formation, right? This is is elite Elite formation. And, and, you know, I think, Mm -hmm. I happen to think that it's very good that people from (laughs) any kind of background can have access to this if they get into Harvard. But my point being that when we think about difference, we need to think about it in a very, I think, multi-layered way because you can have difference of experience up to a certain point in your life. But then you can have a turn that takes you in another direction or you can have uh, remarkable sameness up to a certain point in your life and then, you know, go off and do something in another part of the country or another part of the world that completely changes your perspective. So I just would advocate for people to look for meaningful difference. And you don't have to travel millions of miles away to do it. It can sometimes be, you know, right next door or across across a a river or whatever it is. Gotcha. Um, I I just think that's an incredibly important feature that, that when we're thinking about bubbles, we all, I think, should try to put ourselves into a position of thinking about which bubbles we belong to and then how we can step outside of them. The other thing I think is worth us putting some thought into is where people diverge from their times or their milieus and whether they don't. So, for example, a lot of attention has been paid to the way that Conrad talks about race, and rightly so, because we should never look at a canonical figure and accept their prejudices without noticing them. Right. On the other hand, the thing that's really striking about Conrad in the context of his times is the relative dearth of female characters in his writing. Um, they're aren't very many. He was a sailor in overwhelmingly male environments. His ideal of community was formed in male environments. Um, And similarly, uh, when he does write about women, they're uh, often in his later novels, but they're, they're, they're more fully fleshed out, but they're not terribly well fleshed out. Whereas his, his peers, Thomas Hardy or Henry James, and of course, George Eliot, uh, were people who were writing fully rounded, very significant female characters Mm. at exactly the same time. So that would be a place where we could see him as being actually, if you will, kind of behind the times or unable to or uninterested in or unwilling to or whatever, make a certain kind of move in his fiction, which actually would have not been an unusual move at all to make given the times in which he wrote. He was late as as you uh, I, I believe he was late to really end up in a longer term committed relationship, right? How how old was he when, when, yeah, he, when was, he got together with Jess? He was in his mid to late thirties yeah. uh, when he got married and we don't really have any record or, or we, certainly we have absolutely no um, record of any consummated romantic relationships <laughs> right. prior to that, which isn't to say they didn't exist, but we just don't know. Right, right. So that there, so there may be a maybe a biographical, you know, reason. Yeah, I mean, I think he worked in an overwhelmingly male right, environment, said, yeah. and uh, and he and 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 then when again when we think about what his vision of an ideal community is, we need to remember that it is a it is a male community. So anyway, right. when right, we're right, thinking right, about right, bubbles, right. I think it's I think it's interesting to think about where people. Um, are diverging, where where they show blind spots where you might not expect them to, right. and where they show insights where you might not expect them to. Okay, and I think there from there we'll transition, let's transition to the final clip that we're going to talk about. This is Robert Stephen Kaplan, who's the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, um, and the video is called Want to Retain American Jobs? Stop Blaming Globalization. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Twenty years ago, and more, and you know, in the, in history, jobs were lost in number of locations in the United States uh, because they were lost overseas. And while it, there were a number of benefits of global trade and globalization in the United States, we we did a poor job in this country helping uh, local communities and workers adjust to the negative effects of globalization. Today, if you lose your job in a city in this country, uh, it's probably as or more likely that the reason you're losing your job is not globalization, but it's technology-enabled disruption. People are attributing it to globalization, but it's probably as or more likely to be due to the fact that businesses are increasingly replacing workers with technology. Whole industries are being disrupted out of existence. Think the film industry, the camera industry, while it still exists, it's been dramatically disrupted by, by you know, digital technology and by handheld phones. But this is going on uh, in retail, uh, in, even in higher education. It's going on in every industry. And so what's happening is I think it's accelerating. Uh, workers are far more likely today to lose their jobs or have their functions changed because of technology-enabled disruption. Technology is replacing people. If you think that this is happening because of globalization, you might take one set of actions. If it's happening because of technology-enabled disruption, you might take a different set of actions. I think the question that, that I would ask is whether history offers us any lessons, whether humanity has learned anything or can learn anything about how to ease the pain of technological disruption or do we just constantly go scattering like cockroaches with a foot stamping down on the floor you know like every time one of these these major changes occurs does you know is there anything to be done about it in a humane way and the sort of cycle of how we deal with this now that we since we know this happens right well, I think one thing that we know is that there's a role for the state, and the role for the state is to provide welfare and health and pensions and all kinds of things to people, uh, particularly people who are vulnerable and who are losing their jobs. So you could look at the early 19th century as a period where in Britain, for example, you have industrialization you know, taking off, you have for example, handloom weavers being displaced by mechanical looms. Right. Um, and you don't yet have the beginnings of what today we would call the welfare state, but you do have movements, for example, for political reform, for a more responsive government. Um, you right. have, at the time, as it happens, you have a real push for free trade, which is the opposite of what people are pushing for now. Um, but you can see where you need something bigger than a particular business or industry to right. be providing things for your people. So that is one thing I think we should have learned. Uh, and another thing that is related to that, of course, is the is the role and importance of education. Right. Um, I don't think that it's likely that we're going to be able to take you know, millions of people who have had careers up until, let's say, they're 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 in their middle age, uh, in one industry, and then re-educate them to belong to another. But right. we can certainly make sure that the coming generation is being educated in ways that will be suitable for the new kinds of industries that are out there. Um, I mean, in the America I live in, like I don't I don't hear a lot of conversation from either the right or the left on mitigating the flow of these disruptions, I mean, mitigating the pain of these disruptions other than through either protectionism or, you know, I don't, I don't hear about like, yes, we, we should retrain people, but what, you know, what do you do when thousands of jobs are suddenly lost? Like, 
is there a real buffer that the government or anyone else can provide? I, I don't I don't hear that conversation happening. Yeah, I mean I'm not a I'm not a policymaker, thankfully, uh, for the people who would be on the receiving <laughs> end. But but I would say that I mean when thousands of jobs are lost in a particular place, that is where you simply need to have direct welfare, in my opinion. Right. But I would I would point to something else, which is that um, I mean you could you could look for example at the way that education changed in the late 19th and early 20th century, where okay. for example math and science started to come into school right. and particular and going into the 20th century that stuff started to come into school there was a time in the late 19th century if you went to oxford or cambridge or doubtless harvard or yale you would be learning theology and latin Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily, I mean, obviously these were members of the upper class. So, you know, the people who were running your country knew a lot of theology and Latin. <laughs> um, but in any event, I think that the spread of what were, you know, various kinds of educational institutions like technical schools and so forth in that period were reactions to right. new kinds of uh, industries. And so I, for example, completely support the idea that that students now in um you know, primary, secondary school learn coding. I think it makes good sense that they should learn coding. I don't think that they should only learn coding and not learn other things because another thing that we've learned is that technology changes pretty fast. And if you are um, in this current moment, there's, I think, a real turn toward utilitarianism. You know, what is the value of my degree? Um, What is my income going to be as soon as I graduate, et cetera, which is totally reasonable as questions to ask, but we also have to start, we have to think about the 10-year, the 20-year, the 30-year time horizon. And Right, uh, and we can be, I think, like, uh, in the things that we choose to focus on from a utilitarian perspective, we can be pretty myopic and sort of miss the bigger picture of sort of how coding fits, what, what coding represents or what the sort of computerization of everything represents in terms of the kind of thinking that people are going to need to do in the future yeah, you know, over a 20-year time scale, 50-year time Yeah, I mean, I think we can also look at stuff like what are the comparative or competitive advantages that the United States would have? You know, it's clear, for example, Silicon Valley is in the United States, and there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. Right. Um, but we can also look at industries which don't change in the same way. So, for example, teaching. You know, there's a, there's a high demand for teachers everywhere in the United States, and there always should be. Now, there have been efforts to disrupt education and put mm-hmm. uh, put computers and, and, and videos in the classroom instead of teachers, I happen not to think that that's very effective. And that would be a place where, I mean, that is, you can supplement it. But I think that the idea that we would somehow replace teachers or professors or whatever with a beamed in lecturer or something like that is is a little bit misplaced. And as a footnote, I would say that like Udacity or one of the, one of the major MOOCs, uh, massive online, whatever that is, courses, recently admitted defeat. I mean, they basically went out of business and said that online education, higher education is not going to work in the way we thought it would. So, Right. So we need to think about where it. subbing in technology, well, I should say subbing in new technologies for people is a good idea versus a bad idea. Right. It will always be a good idea to the people who are promoting the new technology, <laughs> right. but we shouldn't mistake that for what is a good outcome for the people. So we know, for example, that high student, uh, high teacher to student ratios, that is, you know, few students in a classroom per teacher, yields good outcomes. We know that. And so there's no reason to get rid of that. In any case, my point is that there are certain industries like, say, medical care or teaching, where there is a demand for primary care physicians, there is a demand for elementary school teachers. And these are places where we can always continue to and should continue to provide uh, the kind of education that will let people fill those jobs. There's a there's a real shortage right now right. of primary care physicians in the United States. We we import primary care physicians. Mm. Um, as I understand it, there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, including the debts that people acquire in medical school, okay. which then incentivize them to go off and be specialists instead of primary care. But in any event, these are problems that I think can be fixed and that can we can learn from that that again think about where the technology will help you as opposed to where the drivers of the new technology may wish to put it into place that may not help your society overall right right so had Joseph Conrad lived into our day no I, I I can't I can't do that to you I was gonna say like had he lived to our day and had he retained his creative powers which sort of failed him a little bit toward the end, I suppose. He didn't feel he was as much on his game as he was, you know, with Lord Jim uh, in the later novels. 
what would he be writing about now? What well, ought he, what, you know, you know the, the irony is that a lot of the things that he wrote about are things that people are still writing about today. For example, <laughs> terrorist plots and bomb right, plots. Right, right. You can see one line of Conrad out into spy fiction and thrillers and John le Carre, for example. Um, you can see other lines of Conrad going out into discussions of capitalism and corporate greed and this sort of thing. Um, you can see other lines coming out of Conrad into, I think, forms of post-colonial writing about, about migration. Um, mm -hmm. I think one interesting question that I, to which I don't yet have a good answer is how would Conrad react to the kinds of immigration challenges that are, that are being experienced by white Western Europeans today where um, they feel that the people coming in are changing their culture right. in a fundamental way. And that I don't entirely know where Conrad would sit. And I say that because he himself was an immigrant coming into London. And so another line of Conrad out of Conrad would be into novels about, say, the immigrant experience in, in London or something like that, right. you know. Um, but I'm not sure. But there was that kind of backlash, I mean, that you talk about in the book with uh, anarchists at this moment in London when anarchists were blowing up bombs in public places and there was a general sense of like, oh, these foreigners are messing everything up. Yeah, like, and Conrad also lived through a period of incredible anti-Semitism that, right. that, that rose in step with the mass immigration of Eastern European Jews, which was one of the factors that led to the first ever peacetime immigration restriction in Britain in Conrad's own mm. lifetime. Um, but I think I would be interested to know uh, or to think more about where he would sit in discussions today about cultural change as wrought by immigration. I'd like to think it's something that he would write about uh, with an updated sensibility and that he would be writing a certain form of immigrant fiction today mm. from a different standpoint from the one that he wrote then living in a time when there was, I think, high pressure to assimilate in various ways. And I, I wonder how he would respond today when the opportunities, if also the perils, are a little bit different. Maya Jasanoff, it's been really great talking to you. Thanks so much for being on Think Again. Thanks very much. And Maya's book is The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World. Um, it's wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Read it whether you've read Conrad or not. So that wraps up another episode of Think Again. We're coming to the end of the year here, which is a very intense time for a lot of people, and I am no exception. I hope that it is warm and enjoyable and mostly good for you. I am thinking a lot about the coming conversations and already starting to invite many people for 2018. It's a really eclectic and interesting mix of some folks you've definitely heard of and others that you haven't, probably, but on topics that I think weave together beautifully, sometimes incongruously, sometimes strangely, into a sort of narrative or score. I, I really can't wait to continue. And if you're enjoying the show, do me a favor, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, go to Google Play, and rate and or review us. And uh, we'll be back next week with another surprising conversation. See you then.